We're going to talk of a spell here about Warren's shaft. We're going to pick up on David's Jerusalem, and I'm going to ask um, Professor Kiner to come down in just a second to give you a new theory about Warren's shaft. Um, Warren's shaft is part of the water system, and I'll, and I'll whoops, you know what I want to do? Hang on a second. There we go. There we go. Uh, it's named after Charles Warren, the English explorer who discovered uh, this uh, shaft. It was originally thought to have been used to access the waters of the Gahoma Spring. That's what they originally thought, uh, from within the safety of, of the walls. Um, it has a, a rock-cut stepped tunnel. It has a horizontal carved tunnel within it. It's got a 40-foot natural vertical shaft, and most scholars think that this is a natural shaft now. And it's got a feeding tunnel that brought water from the spring. So scholars, however, today doubt that this was the system that was used. Um, we remember reading about the conquest of Jerusalem. David said, whoever will go up the shaft and conquer the city, um, the problem is, is that we think this shaft post-dates David Solomon, the period of David and Solomon. So it would be like talking about um, the, um, the, the Revolutionary War in this country and talking about how the Americans had the advantage because they had electricity, right? So because we had electricity, because we had computers, we could outsmart the Brits. Well, yes, we invented electricity and computers and all that stuff, but they didn't happen until after the country was founded, so it's not historical, even though it's part of the popular lore type thing. Um, if we can have Kyle come down, he's going to explain um, how uh, what we think is going on with this system. Remember, it's the Gihon Spring where the water comes up, uh, and the uh, and, uh, Warren shaft and then Hezekiah's tunnel, things like that. Warren Mike? Sure. Okay, all right. Yeah, it's the, it's the right one. All right. So, can you guys hear me in the back? Loud enough? All right. Um, so, like Professor Cargill said, Warren shaft is this vertical shaft, right? That's probably natural, naturally occurring. Can't hear me at all. <laughs> Ritually purified. <laughs> How's that? Is that better? Okay. So, actually, I'm going to draw on this board here real quick so we can get a, a light on up here. <laughs> uh, there's a mark. Well, okay, so you can see here, this is a tunnel that leads to the shaft. So. If we're looking at a section of the city of David, because I don't think there is one in the display, right? It would look something like this, right? So we have the Tierra Point Valley over here and the Kidron Valley on this side. Now the Gion Spring is somewhere down in here, right? And so it kind of flows over this way and runs out into the valley. Now Warren Shaft is in here somewhere. And what the, the Canaanites did uh, was they wanted to get to the water system during the Gihon Spring without going outside of the city wall. And up until only about 10 years ago, archaeologists thought that the spring was always outside the city. And so that was actually, remember, this is the reason people thought David went up through Warren Shaft, is because the Gihon Spring, which is connected to the shaft, was outside the city. We now know that that is not the case. And actually, already in the Middle Bronze Age, which is about 1800 BC, we have these massive towers that are built around the, the spring. And so the spring is actually inside of the city. Now what the Canaanites did then, because they're smart people, they cut an underground tunnel from you know, the top of the, the um, city of David down to uh, the spring, I should say, sorry. Where they could basically dip their buckets down into a large rock cut pool and bring the water up. So they wouldn't have to expose themselves to any people attacking the city of David from the Mount of Olives. Now, people thought that this original tunnel cut by the Canaanites came down and then ended in Warren Shaft and that's where they would lower their buckets. However, I'm going to draw another picture here. When we look at the actual shaft itself, 
it actually appears that it was cut in two different phases. So the original Canaanite phase never actually reached Warren Shaft. So it was completely covered over like that, if that makes sense. It's only in the Iron Age, in the days of Hezekiah, which is the 8th century BC, that they came back in here and cut another pass in this tunnel and exposed Warren Shaft. And so the possibility that this shaft was used by David to invade the city just won't work anymore. What happens then? What is, what is the new theory? How do you think David actually got into the city, right? Because the Hebrew term is tsinor, which is only, only occurs in the Bible two times. So we don't know what exactly it means. But if we look at a plan of the city of David now, right? So we're looking down from the top. Here's the Gihon Spring, right? There's another water channel that the Canaanites cut that runs along the eastern side of the city of David and has these openings that flow out to the Kidron Valley. Now it seems that because the Gihon Spring is kind of seasonal, sometimes it'll put water out you know, heavier, sometimes it'll hardly put any water out. At one of these low points, David and his men crawled through this channel, crawled through these openings into this channel, and then got into the spring that way. By doing that, they passed the massive towers that were surrounding the spring. So, does that make sense? What was the name of that channel? What? What's the name of that channel? The name of this channel is the Siloam Channel. S-I-L-O-A-M. Siloam Channel. Not to be confused with the Siloam Tunnel. I know they don't think of very creative terms, but the Siloam <laughs> Tunnel is actually Hezekiah's Tunnel. That's a different tunnel that's cut later on, which kind of winds through the city in a different path. So, to sum up real quick, archaeologists now think David went through Siloam Channel into the Gihon Spring, and then was inside the fortifications from there. And he never went through Warren Shaft at all. occurring shaft is what they think. Um, you know, like geologists have analyzed it and everything. Um, and I mean, we didn't even know about it until the 1800s when some of these early explorers started to fiddle around in Jerusalem and they discovered the, the tunnel, the underground tunnel that leads down to Warner Shaft. Um, so yeah, and when you go in that tunnel, there's actually a separation between the upper part of the tunnel and the lower part where you can see that it was cut in two different periods. They just get lucky though. Yes. 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 It's a natural. It's a natural. Not a sinkhole, but it's a. It's a natural uh, shaft. It's a, a hole in the earth, kind of like in your uh, Yellowstone. You know, you've got these geysers that just kind of push this water up through natural cracks in the earth, and they pop out. Something and like that. There are a lot more caves and other underwater holes underneath the city of David too. So this isn't the only one. There are all kinds of them underneath there. There, there are lots of these uh, and, and tunnels under there, both man-made man and natural tunnels, and they always cause a lot of problems uh, because nobody wants you wandering in tunnels underneath your house. By the way, the modern, the modern Arabic word for Siloam, S-I-L-O-A-M, is Siwan. It's, it's, it's retained that name, Siwan. Ms <coughs> tend to become Ns into Arabic, but Siwan uh, uh, is the name of the valley right there. We've already talked about Siwan Valley. Why would Hezekiah's tunnel made then? Yeah. To to bring in to make it easier to bring the water in. Okay. It's, a, it's a, just a just like you improve, just like you put the California aqueduct. We already have water, but we can bring it in more efficiently. I just want to show you some uh, some. It's a natural occurring uh, shaft of a tunnel. You can see pictures here. I'll blow through these. Thanks again to Professor Timer for for doing that, and we'll come back to uh, Professor Timer here in a second. I've got a picture of him in here, so you have to see if you can find him from year, years ago. I guess much younger and more dashing. <laughs> so uh, they have put in rails. Obviously, these aren't ancient rails. This is modern touristy rails. <laughs> we always have to point that out to students when we're walking around. Uh, then here's the view from the top, looking down. The view from the bottom, uh, uh, looking up. So it's just a natural hole in the ground that, that they use to, to bring water in. And, and as we said, 
Um, you have two accounts in 2 Samuel 5 and 6, we've already looked at this, uh, and paralleled in 2 Chronicles 11, 4 through 8, that talk about how the story of the conquest of the city was to go up the channel, up some kind of hole in the ground that you could go up through this tunnel and then take the city. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, it says that David did it, uh, or took the stronghold. In 2 Chronicles, it says that Joab was actually the one that did it, who became the commander of the army. They're not really inconsistent because it's like saying that uh, the, the excavator at the site, you know, I might be working for an archaeologist and I find something, but when he goes to the museum, the, the director of the dig found something. Okay, so that's why it's, it's probably the same idea. Even though he was the guy who did it, David's credited with it. But again, that story, you know, we have to, with the new archaeological evidence, with the more things we find, we have to go back and look at these stories to see, okay, are those still historical or can, you know, can we trust the story still or is that a legend? Uh, Warren Schaff, of course, um, the Hezekiah's tunnel probably wasn't until after David. Yeah. Um, so is Siloam Channel naturally occurring as well or is it a thing? The Siloam Channel was, the question is, was it naturally occurring, the Siloam Channel, or was it carved by the Canaanites? Let's chat about the Gihon Spring just for a second. Obviously, channels do you no good. If you don't have a spring, I know it's a dark slide. We'll, we'll get through here. So um, <coughs> there's a couple of, yeah, these are just natural, it's this, it's this uh, natural stone that you can do to wander around through. And the, whoops, the channel leads down uh, into, this is what it's like underneath, basically underneath the city of David and the Temple Mount for that matter. Lots of caves, lots of caverns. Not, they don't want you down in there. A lot of them haven't been discovered yet. A lot of them have been. Um, but uh, the Sloan Channel, which, which uh, Professor Cameron was just talking about, uh, here's a picture of it here. It channeled water from the Gihon Spring to the southern southern end of the city of David. Uh, and you can looks like you know you can actually fit in there. It's a uh, um, a siphonic spring. Basically, it, we think the word means gushing. Like a geyser, if you will, it, it gurgles, it pushes water up, and then it's down sometimes. And then it's up sometimes, and then it's down sometimes. Probably based upon the water flow coming from the far north. So just like when it rains and, and, and the snow gets on the mountains and the snow melts, a lot of times in Israel, that snow will actually melt down into the rocks and will wind up you know, uh, a great distance away through springs. Um, we need to keep going through here. Here's a good picture of it. Um, and the thing to remember about the Gohan Spring is that this was Jerusalem's kind of, you know, the, if you will, water source, okay? And water always plays both a destructive and a creative element within most ancient religions, but especially in Jerusalem. So for instance, um, the Gehon Spring is important because it was where the coronation of Israel's kings took place. Let me show you an example. Um, in 1 Kings 1, 32, you have the story of the anointing of King Solomon. Um, today in the United States, the president uh, is elected, and once he's elected, they go through the ceremony, and the chief justice stands up there and swears in the president. And you say, I, in your name, and you keep the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what you did in, in, in uh, ancient Israel was you put the king, the king-to-be, the king-elect, uh, on the royal donkey. Right? And you marched him down the, uh, into the Kidron Valley, down to the Gehom Spring, and there at the Gehom Spring you anointed him. Okay, so the king, there's this word called uh, anointing, from which we get our word Mashiach, the anointed one, which comes to be the word Messiah, which comes to be have all kinds of different meanings upon it in later Judaism and Christianity. But early on it just meant to be, to kind of be signified as the king. Two people in antiquity, by the way, were anointed, the king and the high priest. So you actually had two different offices that were anointed. Uh, and one of them was done here at the Gelman Spring. So King David said, and King David is choosing Solomon to be his successor. Uh, take the priest Zadok um, um, and all these different prophets. Um, when they came uh, before the king, the king said to them, take with you the servants of the Lord. Have my son Solomon ride my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. There let the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan anoint him king over Israel, blow the trumpet, and say, long live King Solomon. 
That's the ceremony. But I want you to remember that it takes place in the Kidron Valley, down near the Gihon Spring. Why is that important? I'll tell you why. Because later on in the book of Zechariah, there's a prophet named Zechariah, and he gives a prophecy, and he's talking about the restoration of Israel. Okay? And he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Uh, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, something like that. Righteous and having been saved. Again, the word here in Hebrew uh, is a nephal, it's a passive. It's not, he's the one doing the saving. He's the one who was saved, it's the passive, okay? Um, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and I will take the chariots away from Frank. So he's basically, it's a prophecy of deliverance for ancient Israel. And what's he talking about here? Look, the monarchy's going to be restored, the king's going to come, just like we did in ancient times, there's going to be a king, and he's going to ride on the donkey, and he's going to go down to the Gilm Spring, and he's going to be anointed, right? So we know that this prophecy is echoing the tradition of anointing kings in the Gilm Spring. Now, why is that important? This is Zechariah 9, I understand. Anybody know? Why is this prophecy important? How does this prophecy come into play later? In the New Testament, Christians look back at that prophecy and they say, no, 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 no. That wasn't just talking about a king back then. That's also talking about the new king, the eternal king, the eternal anointed one, the eternal Messiah, which they believe to be Jesus. Okay? So isn't it interesting that when Jesus makes his approach into Jerusalem, When Jesus makes his approach into Jerusalem, um, he said to them, go to the village ahead of you, and once you'll find a donkey tied there uh, by her colt, uh, with her colt by her, untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says to you uh, anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them, and they'll, and they'll let them go. So this probably wasn't Jesus predicting the future, saying, I sense a donkey tied up. Go there and bring it to me. Because if you do that, the guy who owns it, I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem, but if you walk up and just start taking someone's donkey and walk off, they usually come after you, right? They say, no, 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 you know, Bob needs it. Oh, well, then go ahead and take it. No, that's not how it's going to happen, right? They're going to come after you. So this is probably a prearranged thing. He had somebody who had a donkey waiting for them there, and he says, the Lord needs it now. Oh, okay, well, then that's why we're here, okay? But why does he need the donkey? What is Jesus trying to say? What are Jesus' disciples trying to say about Jesus? What? Um, uh, bring the donkey back. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, meaning the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coat, uh, the foal of a donkey. Right? The disciples went and did what Jesus said. They brought the donkey and the colt. Jesus sat on them, a very large crowd, spread their cloaks, while others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the ground. The crowds that went ahead of him said, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What is this verse? Those of you who know this story, this verse is read, was read very recently. What is this verse used in? Palm Sunday. Right? The, the triumphal entry of Jesus. And see how humble he is on the donkey. This is the way the story is told. The problem is, is they're missing some words here. When the New Testament is quoting the prophet Zechariah, they left out the words righteous and victorious. See here? Those words don't appear in the New Testament, but they just skip them. Why? Because they're trying to portray Jesus as gentle and humble, not the coming king. But make no mistake, this entire episode, right, this entire thing of go get that donkey, bring it here to the Kidron Valley, I'm going to get on it, and I'm going to walk down to the Kidron Valley, is saying something. It's saying, it's saying something very specific, and now you know what it is. What's he saying? He is the new king. I'm the new king. This is a claim of authority. This is a claim of, hey, I'm the king. See, I'm on the donkey. I'm riding down through the Gihon Valley. And people are saying, long live, you know, Hosanna, long live. If you're King uh, Herod, if you're one of the kings, right, uh, of the Jews, one of the leaders of the Jews, or if you're a priest, or you're a Roman leader, right, and you see this, that's a claim of authority. Basically, that's treasonous. 
So from this point forward, they're they're gonna they're gonna try to kill him, right? Because you can't claim to be the king when there's already a king. That's treason. It's like claiming to be president, or that you're gonna take down the president and people just show up out of nowhere and take you out, right? So this wasn't just a, a, a ride. This wasn't just Jesus' ride. He set this up to, to make a claim. I'm the king. See, I'm going down on the donkey to the Kidron Valley. It's not a little humble, meek thing. This is a very smart claim, uh, an attempt to claim uh, to be the king of the Jews, essentially. All right, let's move on. We'll talk more about Hezekiah's tunnel, but obviously this, this water system is very elaborate down underneath. Um, uh, we get to Hezekiah's tunnel, which we'll talk about next week, or pardon me, next lecture. But I just wanted to show you a picture that's all kind of tied together. There's an inscription that was found in the tunnel. I don't know if you can see, there's letters written on here. But basically, it's the account of how that they dug from two ends, according to the story. And when they came together, at that point, they made an inscription saying, we have completed the tunnel. I just want you to see that the Siloam or the Hezekiah tunnel inscription, we're going to come back to it and look at it next time. I just wanted to put it here because it's part of the water system. So don't write it down. Here's more pictures of Hezekiah's. I'm just showing you a lot of pictures right now. You can actually walk through it. It's, it's a pretty big, big tunnel that they carved out. Um, and I love this quote from R.S. McAllister, a pathetically helpless piece of engineering. They made a lot of wrong turns. It's one thing to make a wrong turn in your car and then you turn around and come back. When you're digging a tunnel and you make a wrong turn and you go a couple hundred feet and you're like, wow, did we, were we supposed to go left? Oh. <coughs> That's a lot of work. So you know, there's a lot of false tunnels and a lot of false digging, but they finally got it done. And they commemorated it, of course, with a bragging inscription, right? Like we always do in antiquity. The Salome Channel, obviously, uh, the Salome Channel, the Salome Channel uh, exits at the Pool of Salome. So you have the Gihom Spring, you have Warren Shaft, you have Hezekiah's Tunnel, and now you've got the Pool of Salome. Salome Channel, Salome <coughs> Pool, okay? That's actually the exit. Here's what it used to look like. They, somebody built a house over it. Remember, this is Silicon Valley, so it's, there's just houses built all over this, or there were these. And this is the controversy today. Archaeologists are going in and digging this stuff up, and in order to dig it, you've got to do what? Move the people out of their house and rip down their house and then you can excavate. And the people whose houses happen to be being ripped down are Palestinian. And the people conducting the excavation happen to be Israelis. Some Palestinians helping them, but it's, it's sanctioned by the... So what this looks like is the use of archaeology to displace Palestinian people from their homes, which is why this dig is so controversial. Others will say, no, they're just, we're just doing archaeology. And besides, we paid them and they moved. But in a political tinderbox, tinderbox like, uh, like uh, Palestine is, this looks like it's using archaeology as a weapon for political means. Now, I know the guy who digs this, and I don't, I don't think that at all. But you're in a place where every single thing you do, no matter how innocent, is going to be interpreted as pulling for one side or the other. This is why I say, even though I like humor and, and I like to educate and stuff, you've got to tread very carefully in this. These are people's homes. These are people's lives that are being dug up for history. And then you have to answer the question. We all have to answer the question. How much is history worth? Is it worth ripping someone's house down and displacing people just to know what lies under there? Especially if it's going to promote tourism and the history of the people with, which, with whom you're fighting. So that's kind of the political problem going on with this thing. It looked like that. Here's the old channel. See how the rock just kind of curls over naturally? Here's what it looks like uh, today. They've excavated that house. They've excavated out under that channel. They've left the ancient channel there. And you can see off to the right. And I just took this picture in January. I was just there uh, walking up through these tunnels. Um, you can see the pool. So the pool, this would have been probably the lowest point uh, inside the city. So this is where all the water would collect, and this is, was their, their reservoir, if you will. Um, here's another picture of it here. It's a big pool. Uh, these are folks that were in my way, pardon me, were walking by when I was taking my picture. We were trying to film a documentary in there, and these, anytime there's a camera there, everyone wants to come up and be in the background. It's like, <laughs> we're trying to make it look ancient. Get out of here. Uh, um, the pool of Siloam is important. Um, 
again, in the New Testament, a Christian uh, verse, in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, we have a reference to it. You don't have to believe the miracle, you don't have to know the story, but I want you to know that the pool of Siloam is specifically mentioned in the New Testament, John chapter 9, uh, Jesus heals a guy, and there's this thing about, uh, why are people born blind? Why are people born disabled? What, what sin did they commit? Because the idea used to be, some bad things happen to you when you commit sins, right? And good things happen to you when you when you are righteous. So if someone's blind, they must have done something wrong. Or their parents must have done something wrong. So some people ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that were born blind? And Jesus says, neither. In fact, I'm going to use this as an example to show you how powerful I am, or how powerful God is. And he tells this guy, um, when he had said all this, he's, this is verse 6, he spat on the ground and made some mud. So this is one of the grosser uh, stories of Jesus healing someone. He spit in the dirt, he makes some mud patacakes, right? Right? Saliva on the ground. And then spread it on the guy's eyes. Mm. Right. <laughs> nice. And he says, now go take a bath. Go, go to the pool of Siloam and wash that off. And, you know, you can interpret it however you want, but I mean, this guy obviously believes Jesus can heal him, so he's like, Thank you for spitting on my face. Now I'll, now I'll go wash it off. And of course, when he washes off, he washed and he was able to see. So it's the, the way the story is told is this guy, Jesus made mud and cakes, put them on the guy's eyes, and it healed him. And I guess if you're desperate, or if you're, you know, you'll try anything. So that's that's the story that we have. But it does take, say that it takes place at the pool of Siloam, same place, yes? Um, if the pool of Siloam is, say, the water, the water reservoir of why would anybody have um, there, there is a long-standing controversy over in which waters you could bathe and in which waters you can uh, use as ritual baths. And you know, are they pools for drinking? Are they pools for washing? Washing? Are they pools for ritual purity? Uh, are they for painting your sheep? Um, and what I usually say is, you can say the same thing about any body of water in Los Angeles. Because we have reservoirs, but I guarantee you there are some, sometimes people fishing in the reservoirs, or sometimes there are people swimming in the reservoirs, and God knows what else they might be doing in these reservoirs, you know, type thing. It's probably the same problems we had. If you're if you're blind and you're homeless and you're, then you'll probably take a bath anywhere you can, even if it's the city water reservoir. Okay, let's move on. So John chapter nine is a Christian reference to the soul. <coughs> Let's finish up with talking about David's Jerusalem here. We already have, after the conquest of the city in 2 Samuel 7, uh, pardon me, 2 Samuel 5, David occupied the stronghold and named it what? Something very original, my city, right? The city of David. So David names the city the city of David. And it says that David built the city all around from the Milo. Remember the Milo? That stepped, the step structure that kind of was a retaining wall that expanded the platform? From that inward. So the Milo was probably there predating David. He conquered the city, and then he built that into his house. And the text says, David became greater and greater, and the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. In fact, he became such a big deal that foreign kings, King Hiram of Tyre, sent messengers to David, along with cedar trees and carpenters and masons to build David a house. Interesting that the first thing David does when he takes the new city is do what? Build himself a palace. And by the way, what's anybody Lebanese? Lebanese, anybody? What's on the Lebanese flag? Yeah, big cedar tree. Why? I wonder why, how are they so famous for their cedar trees? They've always been famous for their cedar trees. Uh, the people in the region of Lebanon, that's kind of their chief export of these magnificent, beautiful uh, lumber and, and the craftsmen to do things with it. And even back uh, when the Bible was written, you have a story of a king up in that region who says, you know what? I don't want any trouble with you. Congratulations on taking out Jebus. I didn't like him anyway. Um, in fact, let me send you some lumber as kind of a housewarming gift, and you can build a nice palace. That's that's how you do international negotiations, right? Right? You win the World Series, or you get elected president, and the president of the U.S. calls you and says, "Hey, congratulations! Let me know if I can do anything for you." Okay. Um, let's take a second about and talk about the Ark of the Covenant. Because David's other big thing that he did was he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, what is the Ark? Who knows what the Ark is or is said to have been? Yeah. Does it contain the Ten Commandments? Yeah, most people think it's it's 
there's something written inside <coughs> it. It's, it's a box. The Ten Commandments, uh, pardon me, the, the Ark is a box. I'm wrong, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's just a box. It's the same word, by the way, for Noah's Ark. It, Noah's Ark is what? It's pretty much a big box, and you put stuff in it, right? So this is an ark, and they would said to put maybe some manna. There's a story about them wandering in the desert, and they didn't have any food, so magic food fell from heaven, and they put some of that in there to commemorate their time in the desert. And then, of course, the Ten Commandments. Some scholars, including myself, will say that it's not the Ten Commandments that are on the, the tablets that are in there, but um, maybe even the plans for the tabernacle. Or maybe um, the, the law, some other laws, some other rules, not just the Ten Commandments. And it's a long story, and it's another class. But, but there's something written, probably the Ten Commandments, maybe the rule, the plans for the tabernacle, in this box. The box is made out of wood and then overlaid in gold. Yes? We don't know. I mean, obviously, when they built it, the lid was off, and they put something in it, and then they put the lid on it, according to the story. The thing to know about the Ark of the Covenant is we have no idea. We have a, a textual description of what it was supposed to have looked like. Um, but we've never, no one's ever seen it. No one's ever found it. Uh, it's not in a box in the basement of the Smithsonian, like, like <laughs> the thing, right? Um, there's lots of different people that claim to know where it is and that claim that it's all. We'll never find this thing. It's gone. If it ever existed, and I actually believe it did exist, for, for the guy who's always fighting all the problems with the text, I think this, because it was a problem. But let me, let me ask, answer the question. Were there ever any claims that uh, the books of Moses were tied? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of people will say that that's what it was. It was some people will say it was the Ten Commandments. Some people will say it was the whole law. Some people will say it's like a claim, or if you're like, well, I can show. There's different competing verses that, that make claims about it. And if you take uh, Professor Schneiderwind here, who actually created this course, who teaches classes in biblical criticism and, and, and textual studies, he can show you why people think the different things that are in there. You'll have this is you know, they made movies about this, um, but what you need to know is it's a box overlaid in gold with two cherubim, cherubs on it. Right? And it is said to represent the presence of God. God says, and we'll read it in a second, um, build this box out of wood and gold. This is, right? He also said, don't build any graven images. Right? The commandments. Ten commandments, remember those things? Don't build any idols, don't build any graven images. But I want you to go ahead and build this box and overlay it in gold and put two of these cherubs on top. And in between the wings, I will meet you. So the box to the Israelites represented the presence of God. And the stories go that they would march this thing into battle. They had poles on it. And they would march this thing into battle. And any army that marched with the Ark of the Covenant would win. Except when they didn't. Right? But the story was that we were supposed to win all the time. Um, what's up? Uh, when you touch it, you die. No one touches it. You can only touch the poles. You can't touch the Ark. You can't look at God. You can't touch God. Right? So there's these stories that they, that they knew about the Ark. And, and they worshipped it as... To any outside other person, they would say it was their idol. Right? Everyone else had their big idol of Dagon, Marduk, or Baal, or they had their idol and they kept it. This is a box made out of wood and gold. And <coughs> this is a controversial statement. Why? To call the Ark of Covenant an idol is what? Is, why is it controversial? The whole religion is based on not having any idols. Uh, so it's not an idol, it's the Ark. Oh, okay. Okay, but what it is is it's a box that represents God and it represented. Uh, the presence of God. And when, and when it was there, God was with you. Moses used to go in and talk to God, you know, and when he'd come out, his face would be all illuminated. There's lots of stories about this thing, which is why everybody wants to find it. You're never going to find it. You'll find replicas of it. You'll find people who made models of it. Um, you know, and, and in antiquity, it was a big deal as well. 2,000 years ago, people were making copies of this thing, kind of like we are today. Let me, let me go through a couple more slides, and then I'll come back to questions on the art. I think I think somebody had to open it to put the stuff in there, but it was kind of just just met there. Uh, well, let's look at it. Um, I, I'm not going to read all these because we've got a lot of ground to cover, but they're on the, the PDFs on the course website, so you can download them and read them. If you're if you're going to write a paper about the ark, these are some verses you should have. Exodus 25 describes how God instructs them to make the ark. Again. Just like sacred space is dictated from above, 
so is sacred objects. So are sacred objects. Um, so I want it to be you know two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with gold. What are some other things? Uh, put in this the covenant I shall give you. That's the question. Are these the whole law, the law of the covenant? Is it just the Ten Commandments? We don't know. It's something that God said that Moses wrote down. That's all we know. And then you'll make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cherubim of gold. Uh, and then that's where I'll meet you. All you need to know is that the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. And it was portable. It was on sticks and he carried it around. Why? Why was it important for it to be portable? What were the Israelites up until this point? Nomadic people. They're traveling around. Right? What's the big what's the big deal about creating capturing Jerusalem and building a temple? Because now you've got a permanent place for what they thought to be a permanent people. Okay? So now you've got you go from this transitional people to a people that are taking over this land, they're gonna build a new <coughs> temple, they're gonna put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, and they're gonna be a permanent people forever and ever. Okay? At least that's how the, the story's supposed to go. By the way, when it talks about cherubim, you'll put uh, you will make two cherubs of gold. Let me just show you from an antiquity standpoint. Raphael drew these and called cherubs, right? No. Cherubs are not fat, cute babies. <laughs> okay. Cherubs are more like uh, more like this over here. Um, they're said to be kind of either a bull or a lion with wings with the head of a human. Like, so you see these on a lot of um, uh, Persian Assyrian gates. These are kind of, they're kind of some they're kind of some kind of protectors. They're usually things that you'll find them on both sides of gates. Uh, entrances into the city, they're kind of the royal protectors, cherubs are. And it's, it's interesting that the Bible details God's commanding them to create, to carve out these half bull or lion with wings and heads of humans, and that's going to be the protectors of, again, that doesn't look very monotheistic and that doesn't <coughs> look very no idol e, no idol e. Non I, I, yeah, you know, <laughs> right? It looks like just a good old-fashioned build these things like everybody else is using, and that'll protect, at least that'll be the parts on the... So the Ark of the Covenant is problematic, which is why I think it's historical. Because later on, when they talk about no, no idols, no idols, no idols, and the Ark of the Covenant's gone, they're in a problem with that. But the fact that the Israelites followed around a wooden box with gold with cherubs on it is problematic for a religion that will later claim to have always been monotheistic, one god, which we know that they worshiped other gods, because the prophets are always telling them what? Don't worship other gods. And if usually your prophets are screaming at you, don't worship other gods, the people are probably worshiping other gods. Um, uh, and it's described. We have it in there. So usually if you're a monotheistic religion, you're not going to say, by the way, here's the other gods that are out there, or here's how we built this really cool looking idol. We'll talk more about, we'll come back to the record kind of later. The thing you need to know about 2 Samuel 6 is it's the story about when the ark came to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6 talks about, and it's a great, I don't have time to read it now, <coughs> but essentially they're trying to carry it up to Jerusalem, and it starts to fall, and this one poor guy, he's like, oh no, I don't want the ark to fall, and he touches it, and God zaps him dead, or he is zapped dead. That's the story. Uz, uh, what's his name? Uzzah? Uzziah? Uzzah. Uzzah. So he tries to help out, and you don't trust the ark. Even if it falls. And so David's petrified of this thing, right? Because if you look at it funny, it kills you, right? So he says, no, 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 don't bring it to Jerusalem. I'm building my temple where I don't want that thing with me. Uh, take it over there. So they move the Ark of the Covenant just outside of the city. And of course, once it comes to this guy's farm, his land, right? His crops start to bloom. He's got all these sheep. All of a sudden, he's got this bountifulness. And he's like, ah. Oh. And it didn't kill him. And now he's getting all these blessings. All right, go ahead and bring it back up here anyway. But what we'll do is we'll stop every six steps and offer a sacrifice. So they march with it, and they set it down. Read this text. And then they offer a sacrifice. Please don't kill us. Right? March with the six more steps, set it down. Please don't kill us. And then it makes it all the way. And by the time it gets up into the uh, city of David, uh, David's so happy that he's dancing around in just his loincloth. Right? He's dancing around, and he's, he's dancing vigorously before the Lord. 
right? You dance, right? You, you kind of, and there's all kinds of scholarly attempts at explaining what's going on here. Is this a victory dance? Is it some kind of rain dance? Is, it, is he just really, really excited? You know, does, does he love to dance? I don't know. Uh, but that's the story of it, of it bringing, uh, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Um, and this is the continuation of it, so I'll just skip this. But 2 Samuel 6, 2 through 19, is the story of bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Okay. Um, what, do we, what else do we want to know about the Ark of the Covenant? I've said this most of the time. You have the blueprint for it in Exodus 24. Again, you can print this out. You don't have to write it down. Um, you can, uh, yeah, the, the story of the placing of the Ark of the Covenant. They actually was, remember I told you, they were supposed to win all the battles, but at one point they lost the battle. And so the Ark of the Covenant was stolen from them. And the Philistines take it and put it next to their god. And in the morning, their god's head had fallen off. Our god's heads are falling off. Right? Dumb and dumbers, okay. Do you remember our pets' heads are falling off? Anyways, the god's heads are laid. So they glue the head back on the god up there. And they leave the Ark next to And then the story is the next morning, the, the things heads fallen off again. And then the city breaks out in tumors, and the city breaks out, and the, and the mice are ravaging everything. And they're like, hmm, I wonder if this idol, I wonder if this ark is causing this. So they put it on a cart, and they put like five golden tumors and five golden mice, because you have to give it some kind of uh, sacrifice, right, to make it happy, whatever was going on. And they put it on a cart, and they said, all right, there's all this green land over there, and there's all this desert over there. If the cattle pulling the cart go to the green land, then it was just a coincidence. But if the cattle pulling the cart go into the desert, then we know something's up with this. And of course, the cattle take off towards the desert. And then as soon as the, the Ark of the Covenant is gone from the Philistines, all the tumors go away, the mice go away. That's the story of when the Ark was captured. So one day, this cart just comes wandering into town. The guy goes, oh, look, the Ark of the Covenant. And that's how it gets outside of the city of David. Okay. Um, so then we just covered this, bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. It wasn't just a historical story. We also get Psalms written about it. So Psalm 132 is actually written about the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant, celebrating the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. And then, of course, later on, uh, after Jerusalem is destroyed, by the way, Jerusalem gets destroyed. Spoiler, I forgot to tell you, spoiler alert. Jerusalem's going to get destroyed, uh, and then people are going to get exiled. But Ezekiel says, no, 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 no. I have this vision of a new Ark. A portable ark. It's all pimped out too. It's got like all kinds of flames on it. It's got four wheels, and it's really—it's a fun text to read. We'll read it. Um, but this portable ark is going to bring us back to Jerusalem, just like it did when we're coming out of Egypt. Okay. So these are some key texts. If you're writing about the Ark of the Covenant, make sure you make sure you include these. Um, let's talk about founding the temple. Um, we just did this, right? So David ruled somewhere about 1000 BC, around 970. Uh, he conquered Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 5, brought the ark to Jerusalem, uh, and then he's built this palace, right? He built his palace from the cedars of Lebanon were sent to help him build it. But he did not build the temple. It'll, it'll be on the exam. David did not build the temple. His son Solomon did, which is where we're heading next. Why didn't David build the temple? He wanted to. The text at least said he wanted to, even though he built himself a house first. Nice palace. Okay. They saw that show Cribs on TV? That would have been a fun one. David's Palace. <laughs> I, I still can't get over the Chappelle shows. Uh, have, have, have you ever seen when Chappelle spoofed Cribs? Yes. YouTube that. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. I miss him, by the way. Um, let's talk about the most important verse in the Bible, Old or New Testament. And then I'll explain why it's the most important verse in the Bible. Besides the fact that our uh, my, my doctoral advisor did a dissertation on it. That shouldn't influence my decision to call it the most important verse in the Bible. Second Samuel 7, you should read it. I know you should be reading all of these, but you should be reading this, uh, this passage here. Um, when the king was settled in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies. Everything's at peace. And uh, the prophet Nathan, you have your own private prophet when you're the king. You just have a prophet who just shows up when you need a prophecy. <laughs> See, now I am living in a house of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant still is in a tent out there. Right? Nathan said to the king, whatever you're thinking about doing, go ahead and do. 
But the same night, God came to Nathan and said, Go tell David, the Lord says to say, the Lord says, um, Are you going to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a, a house, meaning a temple here, right? I have not lived, this is God supposedly talking to David through Nathan the prophet. I have not lived in a house since the day I, I, I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this portable tent, or pardon me, this portable temple. <coughs> they would put it up, they'd put their ark in it, and then when they break camp and go somewhere else, they'd take it down and they'd roll it up and they'd carry it off. That's the tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about all the people of Israel, I did, uh, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders with whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, hey, where's my house of cedar? So God's saying, have I ever asked you to build me a house? Now you want to build me a house? Now therefore, tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, I took you from the pasture, the story was that David was a little shepherd boy, from following the sheep to be the prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, you have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. And here we go, let's talk about sacred space. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From that time I appointed judges over the people. So this is the book of Judges, the story about how they took the land, but they were still kind of moving around. I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then here we go. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will build you a house. 2 Samuel 7, right? You want to build me a house, but God says, I'm going to build you a house, meaning what? Not a house house, but a what? Dynasty. The house of David. Remember the Tel Dan inscription? The house of David. These people call themselves the dynasty of David, the people of David, the house of David. I will build you a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Keep in mind, I even put it in yellow, God's making a promise that God will create David a dynasty that will rule over Israel forever. Okay? I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. When he commits a sin, I will punish him with a rod such as the moral of the Lord. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, who was a king before David, whom I put away before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's the promise to David from God. And it's upon this promise, right, that all of the traditions, all of the things that we know about ancient Israel, the, the inviability of Jerusalem, the eternal Davidic kingdom, uh, monarchy, will be hinged. All of that's going to be hinged on this promise in 2 Samuel 7, including all claims of Christianity that Jesus, remember they had this guy from Nazareth named Jesus, that Jesus is going to be the Messiah, the son of David, the promised king of David, the son of David, the promised king over all the Jews, right, you know, a thousand years later. How can they make the claim that Jesus is not only the son of God, but the son of David, right, the king of Israel, king of the Jews? How can they make that claim? On what verse, on what prophecy, on what promise do they base that claim? Second Samuel 7. So it can be said that all messianic prophecies, not only in Judaism, but Christianity and there on out, are rooted in 2 Samuel 7. So in a sense, because you can't have Christianity without a Messiah, and all messianic, I mean, all messianic uh, uh, movements are rooted in some promise that there will be this anointed king over Israel, you could use quickly, very, very, I can confidently say that this, as far as messianic religions are concerned, is the most important verse in the Bible. So everybody follow? God makes a promise to David that a, a son of David will sit on the throne forever. Now, those of you looking at me kind of funny, why is this a problem? It's not only the promise and the source of all messianic religion, it's also a problem. Why? Remember the spoiler I told you earlier? What happens? Yeah, not only is the temple destroyed and Jerusalem and, and Jerusalem destroyed, but the people are exiled and the Davidic monarchy is cut off. Now this we're going to come back to this thing lecture here later, 
but this is going to be the problem of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 by the Babylonians. Is now you've got this eternal promise from God, right? God's not supposed to break his promises. That there will always be a king on the throne of David forever and ever in Jerusalem. And now it's gone. Now what do you do? So we'll come back to that problem once we talk about Hezekiah and Josiah. So that'll be probably early next week. But that's why 2 Samuel 7 is such a big deal. So he defers the temple. You know, I won't read this out loud because I want to get to Solomon. But basically David says, God has told me I can't build the temple. And in Chronicles, they give you this extra reasoning. Not only is it just a prophecy from God, no, you're not going to build it, but your son's going to build it. But the reason for him not being able to build it is given what? He was a man of war. He had too much blood on his hands. He's too much of a killer. Right? David was a killer. Right? David fought in battles and, and killed a bunch of people before he became king, and even after he became king. Um, so the, the, the reason is given, so you're not going to build me, we're going to have your son build it. That's the, the word from God. So that's the reason given for why David, in Chronicles, why David um, wasn't allowed to build the temple. Okay, let's recap. This is, by the way, it's 1 Chronicles 21, 28 uh, through 22, 10, if you're writing about uh, the temple, if you want to write about the uh, creation of the Jerusalem temple. Can I go forward? Okay. Let's sum up very, very quickly. How do you make Jerusalem sacred? Well, one, you get texts like Deuteronomy 12 and 2 Samuel 24, where God chooses Jerusalem. Okay? You also get texts like the Ark of the Covenant. By the way, I'm going to create an object that's going to represent me, and then that um, is going to be wherever I go. That's the sacred space. Right? Then you get stories like Genesis 1 and 2, which talk about Eden. And then later on, Eden gets tied through the Gehom Spring back to Jerusalem. Then you have stories like Genesis 22. Remember, what's that called? Nakedah, the, the sacrifice of Isaac, right? Um, which says it's on Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah, once you get to Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 3, is associated with Jerusalem, right? Melchizedek and Salem, remember that story? This is a good essay question here. Again, you've got it on the PowerPoint. You can print it out later. You don't need to write it down now. But this is a, you know, what are some of the traditions about Jerusalem early on that made it this magnet for being for being the central holy place? Melchizedek, Mount Moriah, and the Akedah, the story of creation itself, the Ark of the Covenant, the choosing of Jerusalem. These would be your nice paragraph, your nice supporting paragraph. Or if you were writing a paper on this, these would be your nice supporting paragraphs. Not that I want to see this paper 150 times. Any questions? This is just to recap. Okay. Then you need to build the tradition. So now that you've got a, a city that you can call your own, you've got to start building the tradition. So for instance, Psalm 110. It's a psalm. It's a song for worship, right? Um, that says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, why have we seen this name? <coughs> Back in Genesis 14, right? The story of Melchizedek and Salem. So basically now the Melchizedek is being uh, incorporated into songs about Zion, about Jerusalem. How about Psalm 76? And Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. But they're singing this song in Jerusalem. So Psalm 76 is another example of uh, a worship hymn that's trying to suck in Salem, Zion. No, they weren't different mountains. They weren't different cities. They were all here in Jerusalem. And so they build the tradition. 